0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. What does a Donald Trump re-election mean for Canada? This was the focus of a thought experiment between myself and two prominent political and economic thinkers, Christopher Sands of the Wilson Centre, and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin and television pundit, Scott Reid of Festchuck Reid. After our previous episode, in which we looked at what a Joe Biden win means for Canada, I began this conversation about a Donald Trump re-election win by asking the same first question. Now what?
1: Well, um, I think we begin to figure out what a second term Trump looks like. Um, And there are a couple of things we know about administrations. Typically... Two-term administrations do well in in the first 100 days of the first mandate, maybe the first 18 months of the first mandate. But after that, most presidents have a disappointing second term. They, they're already seen to have an end date. Uh, that doesn't help them. The party's already beginning to look past them. They um, they struggle a little bit. Now, one thing with Trump that uh, took a long time in the first term, you would expect that he will start bringing in a more mature set of team members, like most presidents, Trump began with the people who got him elected and with a sort of vision of how he would govern. But now that he has a, a sense of the job, now he has a sense of the purpose he's going to pursue, um, I think what we'll see is a slightly more settled Trump uh, surrounded by a more professional uh, group of cabinet members and others. He's going to have to purge some people who've caused him some trouble. This was not a, a, an easy election, and he'll need a new team. At the same time, I think the Republican Party uh, has to now come to terms with him as their leader. And in the same way that Reagan redefined the party um, or Lincoln redefined the party going far enough back, Trump has redefined the Republican Party. And so for never Trumpers who sat out the last round, this is a chance to join or might as well join the Democrats because this is the future of the party. Uh, That's not going to be easy for a lot of people to adjust to. But um, his reelection, I think, confirms that that is probably our fate.
0: Scott, has the PMO done a sufficient job in pussyfooting around the U.S. president during this election, or are we going to be punished for not cheering from the sidelines?
2: I don't think we will be punished, and I do think they've done a very good job of tiptoeing around the guy and not uh, and not betraying the natural impulse and you could get rewarded politically in Canada for the last number of months for saying i hope the guy goes down. Uh, it would be satisfying. 85% of Canadians are in agreement with that. But but that's a cheap thrill. And it would have been a cheap thrill because ultimately you have to handicap the possibility that you get reelected. So now you're back with Trump in a term two. I'm I'm forced to disagree with Christopher. I think those that hope that you know now will be the moment. Uh now, now will be the moment when Trump uh, demonstrates uh, sobriety and realizes that he has to set forth on an agenda with a group of Adults surrounding him. I, I mean, he reverses all the all the traditions, right? I mean, he started with adults. He started with John Kelly and 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 Mattis as adult as he could get, and um, and then dumped them when they refused to be yes men and they refused to be uh, indulge his uh, most uh, grotesque um, instincts. So I think you're going to see an unfettered, emboldened Trump, and I don't know what that means because there has not been one hint. Of a forward-looking agenda from his campaign had did not offer and did not uh, provide a program. I mean, literally didn't. There was no actual campaign uh, platform uh, at the Republican Convention, and Trump hasn't really campaigned on forward themes. Okay, Trump campaigned on him. So now you get uh, the dime lands on its side again. He gets reelected miraculously, horribly, in my opinion, Um, and we don't know what to expect. So, you know, you're just going to. I think if you're the prime minister's office. One of, the, uh, one of the questions you wanna ask yourself is, with a president who's em- emboldened, one, how do we make sure that he directs his venom? Because it's usually his venom that matters most. Where does, how do we make certain that he directs his venom elsewhere and not uh, in our direction? And secondly, for a president who doesn't really have a sense of what he wishes to accomplish in his second term, is there anything that we can do that offers him something of an attractive answer to that. Are there opportunities for collaboration across North America where Trump could see those things as wins that satisfy his ego, his legacy, his political constituency, but at the same time would serve our political interests? So if I was in the, in the prime minister's office, I'd be drawing up the big Venn diagram of stuff Trump might like and stuff that works for us. And I'd be looking for that little shaded sliver there, or the overlap and say, all right, let's let's uh, let's get our ambassador and all of our other influencers on the phone and see if we can get that uh, somehow onto his desk.
0: But must Canada move further to protect its industries or is this just taking a page from the, the failed depression playbook? We're dealing with an economic crisis. We're dealing with a health crisis. We're dealing with Trump round two. Um, and we know what he did in the first round. Do we have to circle the wagons?
2: one of the most disturbing consequences of his reelection is that we'll continue to see an irrational and ineffective response to COVID in the United States. We'll continue to have to struggle with what that means in terms of uh, restricting ourselves from from collateral damage of that. And there won't be a multilateral effort as the world economy uh, is more challenged, as public health around the world is more challenged, as international agencies are abandoned and not utilized. I think it's a freaking tragedy that the G20 was not employed in the past 18 months in the way that it was employed by Bush in in 2009 as a mechanism to bring like-sized Economies together, and I think perhaps not like size, but at least major economies together that have a mutual developed nation interest and developing nation interest on where we go uh, forward. And none of that's going to happen now. So I think you know we have to. We're now stuck in a world where we're going to have to tiptoe tiptoe through a minefield uh, for the next uh, next probably two years.
0: What about the political minefield on the global stage? Um, We know that we have this bun fight with China over Huawei, and that is something that seemed to be very much a U.S.-driven political crisis. Um, Where do we go on that world stage when we don't have America as global cop?
1: You've hit on something really important, which is that the global situation is going to be both opportunity and constraint for this president um, as he comes back uh, after the election and inauguration. The conflict with China, I think, is deep and bipartisan. It's something that, that the Democrats uh, in many ways share. That China's peaceful rise was a maybe naive assumption of past governments in, in good faith and that China is now um, seeking uh, to disrupt the international system. The U.S. probably is the one country going to take them on. For middle powers, that creates an interesting challenge. And you saw that the Trudeau government really took that challenge on in creating the Ottawa Group to talk about WTO reform. And we've been trying to select a new director general. Every candidate really comes down to being broadly pro-reform of the institution. And the U.S.-China fight, which crippled the appellate body has really left the WTO in, in a jam. But Canada, as a small trading nation, small open economy trading nation, really needs the international system to work. Now that's the kind of concrete initiative, even if Biden had been elected, that Canada would be saluted for. Try to bring the conflict into a, a rules-based structure, reform the multilateral system in a way that avoids trade conflict becoming a trade war and trying to make the institutions of the international system work. Um, similarly, I think one of the things that the Prime Minister's got to have on his uh, to-do list for this month is figuring out what's happening with the G7. This year, uh, Trump was supposed to host the G7. A lot of the ministerials and preliminary calls were held. When the June date rolled around, because of COVID, there was a decision to delay, to try to do an in-person meeting. It moved all the way through the summer. The election occurred. It hadn't happened. The president said prior to the election he would like to convene world leaders. Uh, in person, if possible, if not, in the end of this year, which is the only year when the U.S. chairs, the British are ready to take up the gauntlet. But I think that early meeting of the G7, uh, Scott mentioned the G20, but I think the early meeting of the G7 will be a real temperature taking for where this administration wants to go. And, and if I could just add one last thing. It's easy from Canada to the U.S. to think, well, we're going to get through COVID. It's bad. The economy's bad. But we're going to find a way. But there are a lot of developing countries that are a mess, um, and some estimates have, um, I think the OECD has said that just from the shutdown so far, most OECD countries, kids who are now in K-12 education are looking at a 3% loss in lifetime earnings because of what they've lost in these last months. It's only going to get worse, so we have a challenge, but if you look at the IMF, Almost 70% of their reserve capacity is dedicated to Argentina, a country that has defaulted on its debts to the IMF nine times already. And here's a forecast, probably will do so again. What do we do when countries like Brazil or India or others are trying to come back from COVID and they need money for infrastructure, money for education, money for everything? In a different world, you'd say the Americans might say, we're going to lead, we're going to put some more money in the IMF, the World Bank, we're going to help. Everybody recover. But this is an America first government. Will the American public, let alone the president, want to put more money into the kitty for those countries' development? And if they don't, this is a huge opportunity for China. China has cash. Maybe they'll step up and try to refound the international system around their system, but with their rules. So huge stakes right now on the global scene. And I think whether Trump is master of American politics or not, he's not master of the universe. And it's going to be a tough time for him, especially if he doesn't have friends like Canada helping out.
2: I despair of this like I, I really truly despair of this when people say oh well you know it's you know we've dealt with trump already so we can kind of plug through like at the moment we're at in time i really despair of uh, the of the implications of a second trump presidency particularly when it comes to um the international uh, scene because I think if Biden had been elected, you would have seen the United States would have tried to assert its role internationally. How? Not by necessarily being the 1960s hegemon, but by trying to lead the consensus and, and be the convener of a bunch of developed nations that would say, we're gonna start to hem in. China. We're going to start to say, sorry, these practices are unacceptable. This conduct is not acceptable. And they would have tried to read a coalition of the willing, if you will, from a diplomatic perspective, an economic perspective, none of that's going to occur now when it comes to COVID. You know, from my perspective, you know, we have all of the practical challenges uh, that we're all confronted by, which that's a way of that's a de minimis way of talking about then we're talking about the loss of life we're talking about loss of income we're talking about uh how bad an economic tail it's going to cause but you know we're going to be indebted to the tune of trillions of dollars and and it's it's not the 1990s this is true of governments all around the world so how do central bank governors get together and say how are we going to deal with um foreign debt that we hold to each other and how we're going to manage it when everybody is so heavily indebted. How are we going to manage this? Are we going to try to, you know, reprofile all this, figure out new solutions and remedies? There's no Marshall Plan economically, monetarily, construction wise. There's no Marshall Plan coming from Trump. And there will therefore be no Marshall Plan at all because Trump will do his damnedest to stop it from happening. And if China tries to do it, which I'm certain it will, it'll be episodic, threatening to people, and therefore uh, halted by others. And so, you know, it's 1945, if we're lucky, because really it's 1943, but it's 1945 and there is no Marshall Plan. So what happens if Europe doesn't get rebuilt? Well, that's what the world's looking at in the next three, four years, I'm afraid.
0: I have, I'm, I'm, Desperate to try to find some um, upside for Canada in a Trump win, Um, and I wonder if we can find it in Alberta. We know that Biden doesn't like the Keystone XL pipeline. Alberta spent one and a half billion bucks on it already. Um, Will this be good news for Canada's, if not economic engine, at least the fuel tank?
1: I would say probably. I mean, part of the problem for Canada's oil is that it's been landlocked, with the exception of some of the Newfoundland oil. I mean, Alberta's oil really goes to the United States and and fetches a discount on world price because it has no no other market. We've heard about this from Alberta for a long time, but while uh, this election was going on, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion was proceeding apace. We've got Keystone moving along now um, to the point where it could compete Uh, or be completed uh, early in the second term of Donald Trump. Now, why does that matter? Well, even if you do care, as most Canadians do about climate change, there will be solutions that Canada, the US, and other developed countries can afford long before those solutions are available to the Indias, uh, even the Japans of the world. And I think this is a huge opportunity for Canadian oil as a, as a bridge fuel for those countries before they're able. Everybody's going to be flat on their back after COVID and the economic recession. This is not the time to pitch them on windmills. Uh, we can afford that. They probably can't. So for Canada to sort of be a, an ally of countries that would have a reliable energy supplier and help them get through this period hopefully get the global economy again and then they could going again and then they can look at some other options i think is a very good mission for Canada and it's one that ends maybe some of the uh, win lose rhetoric in Canada where it seemed like you if you were for fossil fuels Everyone from Ottawa through Quebec, et cetera, thought, you're dinosaurs, guys. You're going to go out of business. We're going to put you out of business. And I think that... Win-lose, zero-sum game rhetoric really left a lot of people in Alberta feeling, after the wildfires and other things, like the rest of Canada had no empathy for their situation and wanted them just to you know go away and die. If Canada can be seen, and Alberta can be seen as a partner in helping some of the economies that are now going to be trying to recover with a source of oil that doesn't come with Saudi strings attached or any other kind of uh, problems, I think that's a good mission for Canada, and Canadians should cheer that uh, as long as the long-run goal Uh, especially as we go to Glasgow in about a year's time and return to the UN talks, um, that we're moving in the right direction globally.
2: I think the big risk obviously is that it will create a um, uh, a sort of superficial mirage that, okay, don't worry about it. Like we can just kind of stick to business as usual then in terms of uh, fossil fuels. And there is an opportunity here. Christopher used the phrase bridge fuels. That's precisely the way to look at it, to think about it. The opportunity here is to fill the gap you know, uh, in terms of demand and a gap in terms of time. As we, um, nevertheless, notwithstanding Trump, the world is going to have to make this less carbon-intensive transition, and we have we face an opportunity and a challenge in Canada. And then we're either going to um, transform our energy sector into one that um, uh, is manifest in that new uh, less carbon-intensive world or not. And so the trick we're going to have to do is take full advantage of the permission that Trump offers for the bridge fuel opportunity, if we can put it that way, but at the same time, not lose sight of the need to be investing in that transition and making certain that we're at the we're, we're near the front of it, not forgetting about it and just falling far, far, far behind because boy, come 2030, uh, we could end up in a hell of a spot then.
0: So Biden would have rejoined the Paris Agreement on climate change. Under Trump, the country has abdicated its its role as a leader for change in that department. It's your suggestion, then, that we have an opportunity for clean tech in this country to take advantage of that void that the Americans would leave. What, though, of tech generally speaking? You know, Trump's been turning away bright minds from around the world. Is the exodus from Silicon Valley and the inability of certain immigrants to enter the United States giving Canada a demonstrable competitive edge under Trump 2.0.
2: I'll just be quickly. I worked on the Amazon bid for Toronto, which, you know, obviously Amazon uh, did not come to Toronto, although it's certainly invested a ton of jobs in Canada. And and what I learned during that process is that every single thing that we talk with breathless rhetorical flourish about technology and about the attraction of Canada uh, as an emergent technology center, particularly because of the immigration policies and just the broad political and cultural policy um, and definition of the United States under Trump, it's all true. It's all true. Double it and uh, and add thirty, as they say, as the old metric joke goes. So, um, you know, my my view is, if you're looking for a silver lining, uh, you put your finger on it, Michael, because there we are a destination for technology jobs. You know that Uber built its self-driving lab in Toronto because the foremost expert in the world when it came to self-driving cars did not wish to go to Donald Trump's United States. So we'll still get some of those wins, but we got to be damn quiet about it because, of course, you can't rub that in the orange man's face or he'll make you pay.
1: Well, and I think that's actually the, the cautionary note I would add. It, the tech companies have asked uh, repeatedly for Congress to expand the H-1B visa quota so they could bring some of this talent in, and Democrat and Republican administrations have been unable to convince Congress to change its mind. So this is a made-in-America problem that the U.S. has. In Canada, I think one of the things that Canadians do that that I always admire is they figure out what stupid thing the U.S. is doing, don't do that, and then they get a competitive edge. For a while, under Harper, it was a lower corporate tax rate until the U.S. caught up. But that's the risk, is that the U.S. decides... And on a good day, you hear Donald Trump talking about a more skill-based approach to immigration. Uh, and if the U.S. is going to compete for that talent, that would be a potential pressure. There's also potential pressure for the U.S. to say, you know what, Canada, you, um, you're you stealing jobs from us. You're, uh, you're nearshoring jobs that should be at home. And this becomes a flashpoint between Canada and the U.S. fighting over immigration. So I agree you know, don't hide your light under a bushel basket, but do, you know, c- continue to pursue this in a low key way and avoid a confrontation with the U.S. And I think that's that's really positive. And I, I would add one of the last things that we saw from the administration prior to the election was the antitrust lawsuit against Google. And um, U.S. antitrust law is a, is a, pretty fierce body of law and i'm afraid we're going to see more of that uh potentially now going after amazon or or other players in the field twitter which the president has a love-hate relationship with and they love hate him too so uh, you know i think this is going to be a time when the tech sector will be disrupted by washington and so canada will have opportunities there um, but also some risk factors so pay pay attention stay tuned it's going to be interesting
0: I don't know scott you getting a little nervous that uh, trump's going to shut down twitter on you that seems to be your most vocal platform yes
2: yeah, so i i would hate it if he weaned me off my foremost addiction but uh you know I, I i i i think it's i think everything we just uh discussed there is exactly right i think that trump sees himself as a 21st century teddy roosevelt in more ways than one and busting up uh the big powers that be uh it ain't steel anymore it's um it's tech and I think that uh, they're in for uh, uh, they're in for a rough ride as Trump when uh, for a president who's looking for an agenda, uh, one that registers on a populist level, uh, going after big tech and saying we're going to uh, we're going to rob them of their ability to um, to overwhelm everyone else uh, that might be a pretty attractive place to go.
0: Scott Reed is a former communications director to the PMO and a principal at Fest Chuck Reed. Christopher Sands is a C.D. Howe fellow and the director of the Wilson Center's Canada Institute. If you haven't yet heard it, visit your favorite podcast source for the other half of this thought experiment. Joe Biden has won. Now what? I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.